Sermon text this morning is John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also have hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you for the glorious Trinity, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you how you poured out your love upon us. We praise you how you have inspired this word that we look into this morning. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, bend our hearts to your word, help us to understand it, to apply it, to obey it, and to love it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the common mistakes we make as Christians is pitting deep theology against practical Christian living. And there's a couple of ways we do this. You'll have the group that says, studying theology will make you stale. It'll make you boring. In fact, it might even make you a heretic. You know, all those guys that went to seminary and learned all that deep theology, went to all those classes. Now I know some of those guys, and they're just not very good Christians. So my suggestion is to you is to avoid studying theology. Just live for Jesus. Just live for Jesus. Don't worry about all those big words, all those big doctrines. Just live for Jesus. Just do that. So there's that group. And there's the other group, okay? The theology nerds who love theology, big heads, their heads swell. You can see them coming, gets bigger and bigger each Sunday, you know. But it doesn't apply. It doesn't go anywhere in their life, you know. Their theology does not come out their fingertips, okay? As one pastor says, theology should do. The theology does not come out their fingertips. So we tend to pit deep, rich theology against practical Christian living. That should not be the case. The deeper our theology, the more Christian our living should become. The more we study the deep things of God, the more our life should correspond to those deep things of God. Studying rich, deep theology is not antithetical to Christian living. Okay? It is part of Christian living. It is the way we learn how to live in a way that honors Jesus. We all have a set of beliefs. The only question is, are those beliefs from the world, from our own mind, or from Scripture? We all have a theology. The only question is, is it biblical? So today, we're Trinity Sunday, we're going to look into one of the deep things of God. At some point, your brain might hurt. Okay, your brain might hurt. I'm trying not to do that, but at some point, your brain might hurt. It is a deep, rich doctrine. Perhaps no doctrine is as easy to mess up as the doctrine of the Trinity. We go, the tr Scripture gives us some parameters. One church father said it's a lot easier to say what the Trinity isn't than what it is. It's hard to know. It's a mystery in certain ways, but it's clearly taught in Scripture. And our Christian life and living in a way that honors Jesus is dependent upon us understanding and knowing the Trinity. If we don't understand the Trinity and know the Trinity and know what the Trinity is about, our Christian life is going to be at worst heretical and at, and at best truncated and not very good. Today, we're going to walk through two parts. This sermon is two parts. This is two sermons. I'm just telling you. This is two full sermons. I mean, I hope the second service, we can, even, we can get done before the second service starts. No, I'm kidding. Not quite that long. But there's two sermons. First, we're going to, are two parts. We're going to talk about the Trinity. What is it? 
Okay, what is the Trinity? They discuss some of the ins and outs of it, some specifics of it, and then we're talking about how does the Trinity affect our life? What does a Trinitarian life look like? Okay, so first, definition of the Trinity. I'm, I read John 15. I'm gonna kind of bounce around a lot of the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John is one of the clearest Trinitarian books in the New Testament, so we're gonna bounce around the Gospel of John, but there's other places as well. So that text I read is just one text that I'll be referencing today, not the main text today. So first, I'm gonna give you a definition of the Trinity from the Belgic Confession, okay? So I'm gonna read through it. It's one of the shorter, more compact definitions of the Trinity that I can find. Some of them are like long, long, because this is kind of shorter. So I'm gonna read this to you and kind of make a, com- a few comments as we go through it, okay? We believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, okay? So one God, one essence, Three persons, really, truly distinct. Okay, this is, that's kind of the essence of the Trinitarian doctrine, or what the Trinity says, is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three. So we don't have three gods or three pieces of God that we put together to make one God. Okay, not like a puzzle where you don't have all of it until you get all three pieces together, okay? So it's not divide God. We don't divide God into three. Since scripture teaches that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each has a distinct subsistence, big fancy words just mean essence, characteristics, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident then that the Father is not the Son and that the Son is not the Father and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, okay? So one God Father, not the Son of the Spirit. Son, not the Father of the Spirit. Spirit, not the Father of the Son. Okay. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct, separate, are not divided, not split up, not fused together, okay, like, like you got, you know, like you welded them together, okay, not mixed together like batter in a bowl, okay? It's not like you throw the Spirit and the Son and the Father in a bowl, you mix them all up, and you come out with God. Okay, that's not how it works. For the Father did not take on the flesh, nor the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without the Son, nor without the Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity and one in the same essence. There is neither first nor last, for all are three in one truth and power and goodness and mercy. Another uh, confession says they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay, so that's the end of the quote there. All of this can be proven from Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is not slapped together from a few verses in the Bible. I'm like, oh, there's a Spirit. It's not like that. The doctrine of the Trinity might be the single most studied theological topic in the history of the church, okay? There's a long, rich tradition of understanding the scriptures and how we find the Trinity in the scriptures. So Trinity is not something people just threw together, okay? It is there in the Bible. We may not understand it always, okay? But it is clearly what the Bible teaches, all right? So I'm gonna draw out a few truths from what we just read and then talk about what the Trinitarian life looks like. Okay, first... There are not three gods. There is one God, one essence, one will. There are not three gods. That is polytheism, okay? We do not believe there are three gods, all right? Deuteronomy 6.4, and we could multiply verses here. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Okay, Yahweh is one. The Lord is one. In the ancient world, there were multiple deities, always, okay? Pharaohs, or the Egyptians had deities. The Babylonians had deities. The Romans and the Greeks had deities. There was the pantheon of gods, okay? Bible doesn't teach that. There are not three gods. There is one God, always, one essence, one will, okay? One will. The 
Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit don't have different wills. They don't have different essences. There's one will. And sometimes people come to you and say, I've had people tell me, you believe in three gods. You believe in three gods. You don't believe in one God. Well, if somebody comes to you and says that, look, pick up a theology book. There's lots of answers to that, good answers to that question, okay? The scriptures do not teach there's three gods. They teach there's one God and three persons, okay? One God and three persons. Because that's the first thing. I think we're all pretty clear on that. We're not polytheists. We know that, but it'll make that very clear. Some of this is going to be like, you know, very obvious stuff. Some of it, not so much, okay? Second, this God who is one in essence has three true, real, and distinct persons within his Godhead. This is not one God who shows himself three different ways, okay? It's called modalism, Patrick. That's modalism, Patrick, all right? We don't have God, you know, God up here, and sometimes he puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he puts on the mask of the Father. Sometimes he puts on the mask of Jesus. It doesn't work that way, okay? There are three distinct persons, okay? All of them are fully God. So what we have to grapple with, and this is why it's kind of tricky and hard, is the scriptures plainly teach this. They plainly teach that there's one God and there are these three distinct persons who all are also fully God and they're not three gods. That's what the scriptures teach. Let me just give you some examples here. Read 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Scott did. You know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 20, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's an equality there. Okay, these are all equally God. Okay? Perhaps the most obvious example is the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and God the Father speaks from heaven. Okay? There are numerous, pa- okay, no one doesn't believe God the Father is God. Okay, that's never really the question. Everyone knows that. Okay, the question is, is Jesus God? Is the Spirit God? That's always the question that comes up, all right? Okay. Jesus clearly knows he is God. And those who are around him clearly know he is God. This is not even a question. If you read the Bible, you cannot come to a different conclusion than that. For example, I'll just give you one example. John 8, 58. The Jews are kind of persecuting Jesus, talking about Abraham and those sort of things. And Jesus goes through this whole list and it kind of ends with, he kind of ends with his mic drop. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, what is that referencing? Well, it's referencing the burning bush. When, when Moses asked God, what is your name? God says, my name is I am. And so what is Jesus saying? I am God. He's telling right there, I am God. And of course, they knew this. They got angry and they tried to kill him because they know what he's saying. Jesus clearly thought himself to be God. In Revelation, you have people falling down and worshiping Jesus. Falling down and worshiping Jesus. Well, who do you worship? You worship God. Okay, you worship God. Okay. The Holy Spirit, and I can go into more with the Holy Spirit, but one example from the Holy Spirit is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Remember the story? Ananias and Sapphira lie. Okay? They're, they're give, they say they give, have given a certain amount of money, have given, uh, haven't given it all. I won't go into the whole story, but the point is they lie, and Peter comes to them and says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And there's two things to know from that. The Holy Spirit is a person. You lie to a person. You don't lie to a force. You don't lie to some vague amorphous thing. You lie to a person. And he is God. That's what Peter's saying. You have lied to God. You have lied to God himself. All right. John 17, 23. Okay. This takes a little bit. I have a lot of ground to cover and I already talked fast. So I'm going to try to try to keep this safe here. All right. John 17, 23. It's interesting. John 14, 15, and 16 are filled with Trinitarian language. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All throughout John 14, 15, and 16. Get to John 17 and the Spirit disappears. 
There's no mention of the Spirit in John 17, the great high priestly prayer. You're like, why is that? Where is the Spirit? Well, listen to what Jesus says. And the glory, he's praying to the Father. He says, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are in one. I in them and you in me. So how is Jesus going to indwell his people? How is he going to do that? Well, the answer is the Spirit. The answer is the Spirit. And implicit in that connection is the Spirit is God. Okay? The whole point, one of the, one of the issues in John 14 through 17 is Jesus is leaving. Jesus is going away. And the disciples like, whoa, we've been walking for three years. Where are you going, Jesus? Where are you going? We want you here. And Jesus is like, not only am I leaving, you're going to have trouble. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you my spirit, which basically says the spirit is God, okay? So you got this one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them are equally God, okay? All of them are equally God. And this is clearly what the scriptures teach, all right? So a lot of times when you're talking to people who don't believe in the Trinity, you got to go back to the Bible. Back to the, what does the Bible teach? And if they don't believe the Bible, that's, that's a different issue. But if you're like, you're like, yeah, I believe the Bible, I just don't believe in the Trinity. Well, take them to the scriptures. The scriptures clearly teach this doctrine, all right? So first, there are not three gods. There is one essence, three true, real, and distinct persons, Godhead, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Third, this means the Trinity is unified. They function as one but distinct. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, John 16. I and the Father are one. Jesus also says, the Spirit will take of mine and give it to you. They're not the same, but they are unified, and they have one will. Okay, this, is, this is important to understand. They have one will. In theology, this is called the simplicity of God. Everything that God does, all of God does. Okay, everything that God does, all of God does. All right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are never at odds with one another. Sometimes people will talk about the cross, like at the cross, the father got really angry at the son. And there was this kind of animosity between the father and the son on the cross. That is not the case. Okay? Yes, Jesus did take the wrath of God, but he took it willingly. He took it willingly. It wasn't like he had to be forced or anything like that. They talk like there's this animosity there. There's not. Okay? So there is one will between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. All that God does, God does it all at all times. So whatever the father and the son and the spirit are involved in, they're all involved in it together all involved together. And you might think, what about the death of Jesus on the cross? Well, God did not die on the cross. You'll hear it simple. God died on the cross. No, Jesus in his human nature died on the cross. Now, that's a whole different sermon, Jesus' human nature and Jesus' divine nature. But Jesus' human nature died on the cross. By definition, God cannot die. By definition, okay? So Jesus in his human nature died on the cross, not in his divine nature. Okay, not his divine nature. Okay, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a rabbit trail there to mark, not go down. But always keep in mind, when you're talking about Jesus, you're not just talking about divine, you're talking about human as well. Okay, so everything that Jesus does, as a, as he can do everything God does, okay, but he's also fully human, which means he can die, which means he can die. And he weeps, and he gets tired. Does God get tired? Well, no, God never gets tired. Jesus got tired. So did God get tired? No, Jesus and his human nature got tired. Okay, so there's one will. There's one essence, one will, okay, that God is... Fourth, this God is personal. This is not a force. This is not some sort of, you know, vague thing that's pushing in on us. It is a, it is a personal God. We serve a personal God. Okay? And a lot of, there's two different directions false religions tend to go. They tend to go towards pantheism, where everything becomes impersonal and everything becomes God. Okay, you kind of, if you read Greek philosophers, they have this idea of like, when you die, you get 
sucked up into this great consciousness. A lot of Eastern religions have the same idea, okay? You don't, you don't really retain consciousness after death. You kind of get absorbed into this great thing, whatever it is, okay? And Star Wars is a great example of this. I mean, Star Wars is very explicit in Star Wars, and you might love Star Wars, I love Star Wars, whatever. But the point is, it's a perfect illustration of this force idea. The force isn't a person. There's no one you talk to, okay? The force is a thing that's just kind of pressing in on you. You can either go against it or you can go with it, but it's just, pres- God is not like that. God is a person. He is personal. He knows you by name. He knows when sparrows fall to the earth, he knows. He knows every tree out there. He knows this world intimately. He knows you intimately. We serve a personal God, okay? And the other option is, so you got just pantheism. The other option is just a bunch of multiple gods, okay? And that's kind of that's the, um, the old way the Greeks and Romans did it. And honestly, we live in a world right now where a lot of people function like their own personal God. I mean, what is transgenderism but the desire to be God? I don't like who I am. I don't like who God made me. I'm going to be my own God and recreate myself. Okay? So you think about the Greek gods and the Roman gods. We say we don't do that anymore, but we really do. We really do. We have created these human-like gods ourselves, and we think we can go and, do, uh, and, go and make ourselves God. Okay? So our God is personal. This trinity is personal, which gets rid of both the pantheistic idea that it's just a force and we're all just kind of absorbed in it and the idea that we're all own personal gods. Okay, there's three in one. Okay, three in one. Fifth, this is the last one about the Trinity itself. The Trinity comes as a package deal. Okay, you must accept what the scriptures teach about the Trinity or you are not a Christian. Okay? Now, what I mean by this is you don't have to understand it all. We know, I don't think any of us understand it all. And when you're young or you're a new Christian, you may not understand the Trinity. But you have to, what the Bible teaches, you have to accept. You cannot reject it, okay? And this is why oneness Pentecostals, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and Jews are not Christian in any sense of the word. You cannot be a Christian if you do not accept the Trinitarian doctrine, okay? If you do not believe Jesus is fully God, equal to the Father, then you are not a Christian, okay? If you do not believe the Spirit is fully God, equal to the Father and the Son, then you are not a Christian, okay? And this is always kind of the, the point when you're talking to Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, always is, who is Jesus? Who is this? And one is Pentecostals. Who is the Spirit? So you've got these different ideas coming in there. But you, the Trinity comes as a package deal. You can't have Jesus without the Father. You can't have the Spirit without the Father and the Son. All these come together. And people like to make this error, even not heretical people like to make the error, like, well, I like the Jesus of the Gospels, but I'm not really fond of the God of Joshua, the genocidal, bloodthirsty maniac that just had Joshua go through and slaughter all the Canaanites. I don't like that. What did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. I was there. Okay? You can't have the Jesus of the Gospels and not have the God of Joshua. You can't have it. They go together. They fit together. All right? And this is really important to understand. Remember, people tend to, in various ways and various levels, pit the members of the Trinity against one another, elevating one and lowering another. Can't do that. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's what it is. And if you do not believe that, if you reject that, I'm not saying you have to understand it all, but if you reject that idea in some way, either explicitly or implicitly, you are a heretic. You are not a Christian. Okay, it's absolute necessity. And this is why in a few minutes we're going to just recite the creed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why do we do that every week? To remind ourselves this is what we believe. This is what we believe. All right. So this is what we believe about the Trinity. All right. This is the personal one God, three distinct persons, equal, same in substance, same in power and glory. All of these, are. this is what we believe about the Trinity. And when I say we believe this about the Trinity, 
I do not mean we have these ideas about the Trinity bouncing around in our heads. And this tends to be what we think. When I say the word, do you believe something? You're like, yeah, I believe it. A lot of times what we mean is we got the ideas in our head. Okay. What, what I mean by this and what Scripture means by this is, is belief in Scripture is that which you act on. Belief shapes our lives and forms our habits. Our lives should be entirely Trinitarian. Entirely Trinitarian. It's not just the doctrine. That's cool to think about. Not just a doctrine to fight with the Mormons over or fight with Jehovah's Witnesses over or fight with those guys over. It's a doctrine that is to shape our life. So the question is, if we are Trinitarian, what will our church, our homes, and our lives look like? Okay, and that's what I'm going to for next. If we believe all these things about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, what will our life look like? And I'm going to look especially again at John 14 through 17 and maybe 1 uh, John as well, a little bit of 1 John. First of all, the Trinitarian church is full of life. I love it that we read through the whole creation account of God just making this world. This world come alive. It was nothing. It was empty. It was void. It was formless. And God takes and gives it life. And that's just a perfect reading for Trinity Sunday. We are alive. God has given us life. <laughs> the Gospel of John uses the word life 47 times. So to give you a little, you might think, well, sounds like a lot, but not that much. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts use it 52 times combined, okay? So it's 52 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and 47 times in John, and even more in the Gospel of John, or the Epistle of John, 1 John, okay? John loves this word life. He wants us to know when Jesus came, he gave us life. The Father has life in himself. So listen to some of these verses from John. At the very beginning, in him, talking about Jesus, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, 16, we all know this. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that we might have everlasting and eternal life. John 5, Jesus says, the Father has life, and he's given it to me, and I give it to you. So there's this train of life coming from the Father through the Son to us. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Life, life, life everywhere. John 10, 10. I, this is the Good Shepherd discourse. I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly, okay? John 6, 63, Jesus says, the spirit is life and the flesh profits nothing. So you have the father has life and the son has life and the spirit has life. And all this life is given to us, okay? And a church that worships this triune God, life is everywhere. They love life. And this means, I'm gonna talk about a couple different things here. It means we love physical life. We love babies. We love the world around us. We love the created world. Not more than God, but we love the life that God has given, okay? We love to see new things grow, people and stuff. We love to make things, okay? A Trinitarian, life is, a Trinitarian church is bubbling over with life, okay? And this is one sign. Talk about a dead church and a live church. You know, you hear, the, hear those terms used from time to time. What's a dead church? What's a living church? Well, you can walk into a church sometime. Not always. Maybe one visit isn't the best uh, parameters or best indicator, but you can walk into a church a lot of times and just tell whether there's life there, whether there's Trinitarian life there. A lot of times that do with kids. Are there kids around? Do they love new life? Love kids? Okay. A Trinitarian church just loves life, loves to, and it loves to have living things around, okay? Trinitarian church does not fear physical death because they have the life of Jesus in them, okay? We have this everlasting life. Everlasting life is not something you get at the end when you die. Everlasting life is what you have right now. You have it right now. It's not something Jesus gives you at the end. 
for doing a good job. It's something you have right now. Therefore, you do not need to fear physical death. Okay? Physical death does not have a hold on Christians. We don't need to fear what man can do to us. If you think about the last several years, how many Christians compromised because they were afraid of man? How many Christians compromised because they were afraid of death and did not want to worship God? Did not want to come into this place and worship God. Why? Because they were afraid of dying. Okay? Trinitarian church does not fear physical death. Physical death has no hold on us. Okay? It's, it's an enemy, an enemy that's been defeated. Okay? But also, the Trinitarian church has the words of life. Okay? John, Jesus says in John, left the reference out here. I think it's John 8. He says, out, when these, my disciples, out of their bellies will flow living water. It's a very odd sort of phrase. Out of their bellies will flow living water. What is going on there, okay? And he goes on to say he's talking about the Spirit. Okay? He's talking about the Spirit, which they haven't got yet because Jesus hasn't ascended yet. Okay, remember last week's sermon. You want to know how that works? Listen to last week's sermon, all right? So the Spirit gives life, and we give that life to others. And this is one of the big, sure signs of a Trinitarian church is they want other people to participate in this life. This life is not ours to hoard. It's not ours to hang on to. It's ours to give. Jesus freely gave to us, we freely give to others. And the best way we can do that is inviting people in, inviting them in. So come in to worship with us. Non-Christian friends, come in, sit down, see this life, invite them to the things that we do. Invite those people who are stuck in dead churches. Invite them in to come and take part of this Trinitarian life, this Trinitarian glory, okay? So Trinitarian church is full of life, vibrant and alive because they have the spirit living in them and because of their love for Jesus. Okay? A Trinitarian church loves God and loves each other. Okay? And this is major theme here of John 14 through 17. Jesus mentions loving God, loving one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, you also love one another. Okay? And our love for God and our love for each other begins with God's love for us. Okay? So it never starts with us loving God or us loving each other. It always starts with God's love towards us. It begins with gratitude for God's good gift of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, and John, I'm going to skip the first John here. First John, it says this, and this is love, not that we have loved God. That's not where love begins, John is saying. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Okay? So if we want to love each other, it begins with recognizing and being grateful for God's love towards us. Okay. Love for God and love for each other is a basic mark of a Trinitarian church. And we tend to think of love as primarily an emotion or a feeling. You know, you, sometimes kind of shallow, you know. I love donuts, okay, something like that. I love the sports team, okay. I might love that girl or something like that, and that's closer to the truth or closer to the truth. But love in Scripture is a wholehearted devotion to someone. Your entire being is devoted to that person. It means our minds our affections and our bodies are devoted to God and to the good of those around us. That's what a Trinitarian church looks like. Okay? We don't just love God with our minds. We love God with our bodies and our emotions. We love God with all of that. Okay? So let me walk through each of those, mind, affections, body, real quick, and talk about those for a minute. Okay? Our mind, when we love God and we love each other, our minds are devoted to the Lord. Okay? The life of the mind is important. I've talked about that at the beginning of the sermon. It can be overemphasized, and I think for a while in Reformed theology, there was an overemphasis on the mind, okay? Didn't think about the body, didn't think about the emotions, just kind of thought about the mind, okay? And there's been kind of a swing back, to the, which is good, but you don't want to overreact. 
You don't want to overreact and be like, well, for, for the 20th century, everybody, there was all these big, weak theologians were thinking about all this great stuff. Now I want to talk about the body and the life down here on, on the ground, so to speak. No, we need to have our minds devoted to the Lord, taking every thought captive to Christ. So part of your love for God and love for each other is learning theology. And you don't have to be, you know, math, you don't have to read the biggest books. You just got to know, learn about God, learn more and more about God, okay? Our bodies are to be devoted to the Lord, okay? When I was growing up, no one talked about the body being devoted to the Lord. That was just not, that was what the Roman Catholics did. You know, the Roman Catholics talked about the bodies being devoted to God. Not us Protestants. We're all about the mind, okay? That's what it's about. And that's why we had a lot of pastors who spent too much time at the potluck, things like that, all right? So in, there's been kind of a resurgence of devoting our bodies to the Lord, especially in our circles, I think out in the world too, out in other Christian circles as well. But in our circles in the CREC, this has been brought back to the forefront of worshiping God with our bodies, of loving God with our bodies. And a large reason for this is the physical nature of our worship. When I was a kid growing up, I don't know what churches you guys grew up in, but my churches, the churches I grew up in, you, there was no kneeling. There was no eating and drinking at least maybe once a quarter, if you were lucky, maybe a Sunday night service devoted to the Lord's Supper. There was no kneeling, okay? There was no raising of hands. That's what the Pentecostals did. All the Pentecostals raised their hand, okay? We don't do that here, okay? Those sort of things. But all that's been brought back. Why is that? Why is it? Because we want to learn to love God with our bodies, not just think good thoughts about God, not just feel good feelings about God. We want our bodies to be devoted to God. So when we kneel and we raise our hands and say, Lord, this is yours. This belongs to you. And I'm going to love you with this body. Okay? And then, of course, our emotions and affections are be devoted to the Lord as well. What we desire, what we want, what we love, what we think about. Okay? The, more, the longer I live the more I realize that a lot of our decision-making is driven by what we want, by our desires, what we long for. So we'll often do something down here that's wrong and bad, and we can trace it back to a bad desire. Okay? We might not think that. I want good things. We never say we want bad things out loud. Okay? But a lot of times our sins are motivated by not wanting the things of God. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, one of the things we will change is what we want for, what we want. Jesus says, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. Okay, John 4. He loved to do the will of his Father. And that's the kind of desire we want to have. We want to have that desire, okay? So we love God. A Trinitarian church loves God, and we love each other, okay? We love each other with our minds. We think about how we can care for one another. We think about how we can love each other. We love each other with our bodies. We give of our stuff, Okay, we give of our things to people. And then we love each other with our emotions and our affections as well. So Trinitarian Church is full of the love of God. Love for God, love for each other. Okay? And Jesus is clear about that in, um, in those sections in John. All right? But love is not whatever you want to be. Love has a very specific parameters in Scripture. Very specific parameters. All right? It's interesting. We tend to think of love and obedience as almost like separate categories of things. Love's over here and obedience over here. For Jesus, love and obedience are basically synonyms. Okay? To love is to obey. To obey is to love. They are synonyms. Okay? Love is not something we can just fill in with whatever we want. Okay? I like to describe it. A lot of people view love as like a jar with love on the outside, and it's empty. You just got to put in whatever you want to put in there. You know? this Love is love, right? Love is love. Just put in whatever you want to. Well, Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Okay? 
Not the case. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. That's what Jesus is saying very plainly there. John 15, all about the fruit and the vine and bearing good fruit. Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you love me, guess what you're going to do? You're going to bear fruit. You're going to grow. And if you don't abide in me, you don't love me, you're not going to bear fruit. You're not going to obey. Okay? And 1 John, even going to 1 John 5, brings this all together. Okay? So listen to this carefully. 1 John 5, 1 through 3. By this we know we love, we love the children of God. How do I know I'm loving you? If we love God and keep his commandments. So the way we know we're loving each other is are we loving God and obeying God? If you're not obeying God, you are not loving your neighbor. Okay? doesn't matter what you feel, what you think, what you want it to be. That's what Jesus says. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So Trinitarian church isn't just about love. It's about obedience, obeying the commandments of Jesus, loving to obey the commandments of Jesus, learning to obey the commandments of Jesus. Where am I off track? Where am I thinking the wrong thoughts? Where am I not loving my neighbor like scripture calls upon me to do? Okay, let me give you one example of this from Leviticus. Okay, we all know Leviticus 19 verse 18 the end of this, you all know this verse. You might not know it off the top of your head. You've all heard it though. The end of Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 verse 18. What comes before that? Let me read you some of this. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus is quoting this, we hear, we know, we hear this all the time. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. What is he talking about? Not bearing tales. He's talking about rebuking. Listen, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So sometimes loving your neighbor as yourself is rebuking your neighbor. Some, hey, you know what? That's not a smart move. You shouldn't be acting like that. Shouldn't be talking about it like that. Shouldn't be raising your children like that. Okay? So we have this picture of love, and it's often just vacant, and we put in whatever we want to. Love is defined by the scriptures. Okay? So Trinitarian Church isn't just about love, it's about obeying the commandments of Christ, listening carefully to the commandments of Jesus and striving to obey them. A church that is not obedient is a church that is not Trinitarian, does not love God. Doesn't matter what they say. They can have love all over. They have love signs, love heart, everything. It doesn't matter. They don't love God if they're not obeying God, striving to obey God. So Trinitarian Church loves God by obeying God, okay? and by loves the neighbor by obeying God. Those things are not antithetical to one another. All right? A Trinitarian Church is at peace despite tribulation and persecution. This is one of the major themes. I've talked about this already. One of the major themes in John 13 through 17. Jesus is leaving. Persecution is coming. How are we going to be at peace? How are we going to be at peace? So listen to what Jesus says here. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, indicating I'm going to leave, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Okay, and he says something very similar later on in John chapter 15. Okay, Jesus promises us peace. A church that knows they are at peace with God is a church that does not fear tribulation and persecution. 
It doesn't fear the outside pressures. doesn't fear the, the things that might kind of push in on her and try to destroy her. Jesus is peace. We have peace because of the blood of Jesus. We have the spirit in us. Okay? So we don't need to be worried about tribulation or persecution. It can be big. It can be big things, you know, like somebody dying for Jesus. But think of little things. Think of little sufferings. You don't need to worry about the little sufferings, the loss of the job, you know, the broken relationship. Those things, yes, they're hard and they're real. But you have peace with God. You have peace with God. Jesus shed his blood for you. You're in unity with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You're in communion with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You don't need to worry about those things. Now think of the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts. He's on a ship. There's a massive shipwreck. Everybody's running around frantic, you imagine. Oh, there's a storm coming. Everybody's running around. They're frantic. They're throwing stuff overboard. And Paul's like, hey, you know what? Why don't we sit down and eat some food? You know, why don't we just all sit down and break some bread together and eat some food? Okay, Paul's at peace. Because he's in the will of God. He knows who God. And this is true of all the great Christians. You hear about these great Christians going and getting burned, getting chopped up, getting thrown to the lions, suffering through cancer faithfully. We've seen a lot of guys in the CRC, big names in the CRC, last several years suffer and die from cancer faithfully to Jesus. How do they do that? How do you stay at peace? Well, because of your relationship with God. And this has to do with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Trinitarian Church is at peace. It doesn't get ruffled by the things from the outside. And finally, a Trinitarian church glorifies God and glorifies each other. There's so much glory in John 17. So much glory is mentioned there. It's magnificent. Listen to some of this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you've given to me to do. Notice there that connection between glory and obedience, okay? Jesus obeyed the Father, and therefore he glorified the Father. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And Jesus goes on to say, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in this. There's glory everywhere. Okay, the Trinitarian, if you ask, what is the Trinity about? The Trinity is about glory. And we tend to view glory as a fixed substance. Like there's only so much of it, like money. Okay. If I have a thousand dollars and I start slinging out a hundred dollar bills, sling 10 times and my thousand dollars is gone. Okay. There's a limited amount there. And that's how we tend to view glory. The world views glory that way. And that's why they're always scratching and clawing and pulling at one another. That's why when someone leaves a sports team, they have a, they have a, a media session. What are they, a lot of times they're like, well, the coach just wasn't kind to me and they, they knocked down the team and I really need a better situation. Okay. You leave an employer. And a lot of times they do the same things, okay? Leave a church. <laughs> Sometimes people do that. They leave a church and they go talk to the pastor. Okay? That's because we view glory as sort of this fixed substance. I want glory. I don't want that person to have glory. But glory does not work that way in God's economy because glory is not limited because God's glory is infinite. It is limitless, okay? There's not like a fixed amount of glory and you get some and I get some and that's it. We can all be massively glorified. I can use that terminology. We can all be lifted up and glorified. So a church that is Trinitarian loves to glorify God. I think we all understand that, exalt God, but they also love to glorify each other. We want to see other people exalted. We want to see other people honored. We want to see other people lifted up. It's not a zero-sum game. I can be glorified and you can be glorified. Okay? Husbands, you should want to see your wife glorified. Wives, you should want to see your husbands glorified. It's not a competition. Okay? There's not a fixed amount. Parents, you should want you to see your children glorified, like to excel beyond you, to be better than you, more righteous than you. 
I think fathers in particular can have the temptation of like, kind of push their kids down, especially their sons. You know, I don't want my son to exceed me. We should want our sons to exceed us. Children, you should glorify your parents. Even older children, glorify your parents. You should want them to be exalted, want them to be honored, want them to be lifted up. Leaders in the church, if one leader in the church is elevated, that doesn't, isn't reason for you to get upset. Okay? You should want them elevated. You should want them lifted up, okay? Sometimes someone will come to, it's easy. I know as a pastor, remember, being a pastor, I'm a pastor now too, I guess, but I remember being a pastor in West Virginia. And sometimes someone will come to me and say, well, you know what? I was talking to so-and-so, and he told me this great truth, and it's really like changed my life, just a member of the congregation. And there'd be a little, a little part of me that's like, oh, man, why didn't he come to me and ask that question? Well, he said, that's terrible. That's an awful way to live. That's jealousy and pettiness. Okay? The aim of the Christian life is not to get what's yours. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to give us glory. He came to pour out his glory on us. So we can take that glory and pour it out on others. Okay? So the Christian life is not one of pettiness, not one of jealousy. You should want all your brothers and sisters in Christ to be exalted, to be lifted up, to be praised. When someone else is honored, you shouldn't feel jealousy. You should rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul says this in Romans 12. Okay? You should rejoice when they get honored. Okay? So this is the Trinitarian life. We have this one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. This God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we believe and live, live this out, it means overflowing love for God and each other. It means life abundant. It means obedience to Christ. It means peace and tribulation, and it means glory, not just for one, not just for a few, but glory for all as they are lifted up. This is the Trinitarian life. This is what God has given to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this life you've given to us in Jesus, and really, we have just barely begun to understand it, barely begun to live it out. Help it to be a great pursuit of ours as a, as a church to love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to understand you better, to shape our lives more and more by who you are. Give us strength and grace to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.